Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Advent and Status Anxiety. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 16th, 2012, the third Sunday in Advent. In his 2006 Jefferson Lectures for the National Endowment for the Humanities, the novelist Tom Wolfe explains how he got his trademark theory about what defines people in contemporary society. As a grad student back in Yale in 1952, he read an essay by Max Weber that shaped his thinking for the next 60 years. The German sociologist argued that society was stratified not only by economic class, as Marx had said, but by status groups. People form status groups based upon shared values. Status groups can share almost any value, education, speech, dress, sports, politics, religion, ethnicity, family, occupation, sex, and so on. Status groups thus become an inner circle which either include or exclude you. Extrapolating on Weber, Wolf calls this phenomenon status anxiety. In his view, status anxiety is what drives every human being. He writes, even before I had left graduate school, I had begun to wonder if somewhere in the brain there might be a center that interpreted incoming data and gave the human beast the feeling he was improving its status, merely maintaining its status, or suffering the grave wound of humiliation. Nathaniel Rich observes that the characters in Wolfe's new novel, Back to Blood, just published this fall, are driven by the same motivations as all the characters in Wolfe's previous novels. He writes, Anxiety about social status is the animating force of modern society. It is not a simplification to say that Wolfe's fiction is structured entirely upon this sociological approach. Status anxiety, says Boris Kochka in another review, is that great fatal flaw of every wolf character. Critics will quibble, but Wolf has always insisted that his novels are realistic descriptions of contemporary society. He's famous for his research into the real-life worlds of everyday people. And it's not a pretty picture. The peoples in his novels inhabit a hierarchical world of competition, vanity, and pretension. They struggle with deep feelings of inadequacy. They worry about what others think of them. Do they wear the right clothes? Is their spouse good-looking? Does their job convey prestige and power? Status anxiety is a form of self-absorption. In the vivid descriptions of St. Augustine, it's the heart curved in on itself. Our self-centeredness, says the novel David Foster Wallace in his 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College, is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. 
This is hard to admit or talk about, says Wallace, because it's socially repulsive. David Foster Wallace was an astute observer of nearly every important cultural trend. Television, movies, politics, pornography, business, and work. His novels show how these powerful social forces agitate our status anxieties, dictate our desires, and reinforce our self-centeredness in a recurring loop. No one is immune from their force field. Most of us go with the flow. A few actively resist, although this always comes at the cost of exclusion from a status group. Status anxiety is a game you can never win. If you worship money, Wallace observes, you'll never have enough. If you crave sex and beauty, you'll always worry that you're ugly. If you think science alone explains everything that's knowable, your world will be devoid of mystery. If power is your game, you'll likely be a deeply insecure person and a control freak. An uncritical attitude toward technology leads to powerful means with no moral ends. Mental health experts observe how the Christmas season aggravates our anxieties. This happiest of seasons is unbearably sad for some people. Big parties with status-driven chatter accentuate our loneliness. Christmas commercials brainwash us into thinking we can spend our way to fulfillment. For an iconic moment when the many forces of status anxiety coalesce, consider Black Friday shopping. That day after Thanksgiving, when people who have camped out all night in front of a Walmart stampede each other to death in the early morning darkness. And why? To spend money they don't have on stuff they don't need. And if status anxiety wasn't bad enough, we all have legitimate anxieties about real problems. Last week, a reader emailed me to request a poem to help her plan her own funeral. She's dying of lung cancer. At the post office, I met a neighbor who said he's made 175 job inquiries, but still can't find work. At church, a friend's brother died of Alzheimer's. And another friend found a burnt spoon and hypodermic needle in a teenager's bedroom. Who wouldn't worry? And so the epistle for this third week in Advent explodes like a bomb in your briefcase. Be anxious for nothing, writes Paul. His words echo those of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be anxious about your life. At least five times in this short passage, Jesus says to us, don't worry. Why? Because the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. In this week's Gospel, the crowd asks John the Baptizer, What should we do? 
John flips their self-centered worlds upside down. Instead of self-absorbed anxiety, he tells them to care about other people. If you have food and clothes, he tells the crowds, share with others. Tax collectors shouldn't cheat citizens. Soldiers shouldn't extort helpless citizens, but instead be content with your pay. Christmas is the perfect catharsis for status anxiety. It's a catharsis because it's a kenosis. Kenosis is the Greek word that Paul uses to describe how Jesus emptied himself so that we could experience God's fullness. Elsewhere, he uses an economic metaphor to describe this kenosis. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Advent invites us to imitate Jesus, as far as that is humanly possible. It gives us new scripts to write a different story. Instead of self-centered anxiety, it commends self-denying compassion. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, Paul told the Philippians. It's a season that moves us from a self-regarding heart curved in on itself to an other-regarding love of others. And so Advent is the antidote to status anxiety. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a title called The Long Walk to Freedom, Runaway Slave Narratives. It's edited by Devon Carbato and Donald Weiss. Boston Beacon Press, 2012, 248 pages. There's an extensive literature of slave narratives, but much less so of narratives written by fugitive slaves on the run. This collection of 12 first-person narratives from 1815 to 1901 by runaway slaves felt like reading Holocaust literature in its power to evoke the violence, sadistic torture, and exploitation of systematic evil. <coughs> Several of these accounts are by famous writers who have remained in print, Frederick Douglass, Nat Turner, and Harriet Jacobs. But other works haven't been in print for over a hundred years. These narratives disabuse us of any romantic notions about slave life and of the idea that slaves were passively compliant people. Rather, they attest to the creativity, bravery, perseverance, and drastic measures that some slaves took in order to claim their human dignity. Henry Brown shipped himself in a box to the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. Ellen Craft described 
disguised herself as a white master and her husband William as his slave companion for a thousand-mile journey from Georgia to Pennsylvania. When Robert the Hermit finally gained his freedom, he secluded himself in a cave as a hermit. One of the most counterintuitive facts of history is that blacks adopted the religion of their white oppressors, a religion that was often the primary means of their oppression. These fugitive narratives indict the many Christians and churches who justified slavery by appeal to their religion. This makes for very painful reading. But the stories also document how slaves were encouraged by a liberating God and gospel, and the many people who did, in fact, risk their own lives to help free them. There are multiple mentions, for example, of the Quakers. As one person put it, that excellent class of people who I never feared to trust. Beginning in 1444, and lasting over 400 years, the European slave trade marketed and merchandised some 40 million African people. Black history is, black history in what became America began in August of 1619, when 20 slaves disembarked from a ship in Jamestown, Virginia, and the captain traded them for what he called victual. By 1860, the United States Census identified four million slaves. The error of Jim Crow didn't end until the Supreme Court's ruling on Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. So this is a long, long history in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Harriet Jacobs put it this way, Sometimes I thought God was a compassionate Father who would forgive my sins for the sake of my suffering. At other times, it seemed to me there was no justice or mercy in the divine government. I asked why the curse of slavery was permitted to exist, and why I had been so persecuted and wronged from youth up. These things took the shape of mystery, which is this day not so clear to my soul as I trust it will be hereafter. Devon Carbato and Donald Weiss, editors, The Long Walk to Freedom, Runaway Slave Narratives. <coughs> For film this week, I review a movie from the year 2009. It's called Objectified. If you live in a developed country, and not in the two-thirds world, virtually every object in your life was conceived, designed, and manufactured by an industrial designer. <coughs> in fact, it's an interesting exercise to try to think of any object in your life that isn't the result of industrial design. Objectified is the second documentary film in the independent filmmaker Gary Hustowitz's so-called Design Trilogy, along with the movie Helvetica from 2007, and then another one, Urbanized, from
from 2011. I've watched all three of the movies and enjoyed them immensely. Objectified looks at the mass production of objects for mass consumption, like your toaster, toothbrush, or alarm clock. Some things are designed well, like your iPhone, while others are poorly designed, like an uncomfortable chair or a tool that hurts when you use it. The film interviews industrial designers from all over the world, one of the most interesting of whom is Apple's senior design guru, Jonathan Ives. The best design, some people think, has a sense of inevitability to it, and might even look and feel undesigned or underdesigned. The film ends with the challenge of sustainability for planet Earth as designers create more and more stuff. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. From the year 2009, Objectified. And finally, for the third week in Advent, we've posted a poem by Sister M. Chrysostom, Order of St. Benedict. A very short poem is called The Stable. The winds were scornful, passing by, and gathering angels wondered why a burdened mother didn't mind that only animals were kind. For who in all the world could guess that God would search out loneliness? The Stable Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, December 16th, 2012, the third Sunday in Advent, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.